Companies across a range of industries now understand the benefits of edge computing, which can facilitate faster processing and enhanced data analysis. But given the remote access points of these devices, they're literally at the edge of the network, these companies are facing new vulnerabilities that can open them up to attacks. So how do you address cybersecurity threats on the edge and develop the best edge security strategy for your organization? Hi, thanks for joining us again at the ICS Pulse Podcast. I am Gary Cohen, joined as always by... Yeah, Tyler Wall. And of course, as per usual, we got to open up with pressing questions of the world. Today's pressing question is, what is your favorite season? I am going to go with fall. Summer's great. You can be outside, but uh, I'm not huge on... We live in the Midwest and the humidity and the 95 degrees. Fall is my season. Sweaters still can be outdoors. It's not painful. Yeah, that's the one. Well, it seems that the moon and the stars have aligned today because I agree with you on that one. Uh, Yeah, it's just kind of like a feels like a cozy season, if you will, especially as it bleeds closer into uh, the winter seasons when there start to be some snowfall. You get that uh, high quality HD fireplace footage going on your TV. Very (laughs) enjoyable. Always important. I also have to say, every time I introduce you on the podcast, I say, joining me as always is Tyler Wall. It may be that I've watched Parks and Rec too often, but I always want to say, joining me as always is my CGI puppy sidekick, Bobby the Boo. I don't know if anybody (laughs) gets that reference, but it's in my head every time I do the intro. Just go ahead and do it one of these times. (laughs) (laughs) I will. He'll be like, CGI puppy sidekick. There's a podcast. Um, (laughs) Obviously, from my intro, we will be talking about edge computing today. we got a great guest with us. Uh, we have Josh Eastburn. When he talked to us, full disclosure, he was with Opto22. He is now with a company called EMQ Technologies, um, director of technical marketing for both of those companies. Uh, but he talked a lot about edge computing, the benefits of it, and the cybersecurity risks of it. So we're going to have a really good conversation later on in the podcast about that. Um, also wanted to point out that we are regardless of when you're listening to this podcast, we are recording this podcast, oh, let's generously say an hour before we're both going to skip out of here for the Thanksgiving holiday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was thinking about the holidays and and cyber attacks or cyber threat because, man, what puts you in the mood for the holidays like cyber threat? But there is a, uh, a study that Cyber Reason puts out. I don't want to say every year. I think they started it last year. But about how ransomware threat actors tend to strike when companies are the most vulnerable. Makes sense. That's on holidays and on weekends. So I'm going to read a quote from this and then go over some of the things that they talk about. But but companies are uniquely vulnerable at these times because, as we always say, threat actors are looking for pain points. When things are unmanned or the second team is in and not the first team, that's a really good time to strike. So this quote from the The executive summary, our research revealed that most companies were unprepared for a ransomware attack during, quote, non-business hours, largely because they didn't have contingency plans in place to address them and because they cut staffing levels during these times. Consequently, these attacks took longer to investigate and resolve and cost companies more money, which obviously is a major problem. People are, our company is no different, tend to take off time during the holidays, their lower staffing levels. It's uh, a prime time for people to attack, and attacks often do happen over the holiday season. 
Yeah, it really, yeah, the phrase money never sleeps on Wall Street very much applies to ransomware attacks on the holidays in the sense that money does really never sleep because they're always on the hunt. Right. One of the questions they ask, again, this is from a cyber reason survey, describe the impact of a holiday weekend attack compared to an attack occurring on a weekday. 34% of respondents said it took them longer to assemble their team. 37% said it took them longer to stop the attack. 36% said it took longer to recover from the attack. 31% uh, the business lost more money. 37% it took us longer to assess the attack scope. So uh, this is obviously a big problem. Have you ever missed celebrating a holiday or participating in a weekend event because of a ransomware attack? 88% of respondents to this survey said yes. 88% have missed celebrating a holiday or participating in a weekend event because they're remediating a ransomware attack. So uh, watch for those attacks at, at prime times like this. So the second that we are all checking out, uh, unfortunately, threat actors are checking in. Oh, yeah. And then they even later, they talk about um, like the steps that organizations are taking to address these new ransomware threats. And only 38, these, these numbers are shockingly low. Only 38% of companies are instilling new detection capabilities. Only 31% are augmenting their staff to respond faster. 29% are pursuing automation to accelerate attack detection, which is, by the way, a great way of doing it, using AI and ML to your advantage. Uh, 27% are learning to negotiate with ransomware actors, which I feel like is obtusely pointless, but <laughs> that is just my own non-informed opinion. And 27% were setting up crypto wallets in the event we decide to pay, which again, yeah, I mean, you do, if you, if you do want to try and get the data back, that is one of the ways you're going to want to have to go about it is to pay them. But unfortunately, as we have discussed many a times, that does not mean you will get anything back at all. Exactly. And then I, and I swear to God, after this, we're going to stop throwing numbers at you. Uh, they asked what kind of security incident is your SOC team or uh, security operations center team most frequently trying to resolve? Sh not shockingly at all, 49% said ransomware, 46 supply chain attacks, 31% targeted attacks. So ransomware is the thing that people are most concerned about. And that also makes sense during the holidays. We talk industrial cybersecurity here, but man, if you're making uh, looking to make a quick buck and you want to take systems down during the holidays, uh, great time to make some quick money. If you can take a target or somebody who's doing a lot of online sales during this time down, uh, that that's a pain point. So obviously ransomware is the big thing to worry about here. Yeah. You got to fill up those stockings somehow. Uh, one of the other interesting things that, I mean, I stumbled across today as I was writing an article earlier was the idea of ethical hacking. Now, Gary, do you think that there can be ethics involved in hacking? I, I do. I mean, you know, you talk about like red team, blue team exercises or things like that. I know that's not ethical hacking, but I think there can be some benefits to it, depending on what the motivation is for the person who was doing the ethical hacking. But uh, obviously, any kind of hacking scares me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. So a couple years ago, a couple years ago, like eight, um, there was a couple, uh, a couple times four. Yeah, a couple times four, right. Uh, there was a cyber attack on the Boston Children's Hospital that took place because a part, a person that is a part of the hacker group Anonymous, a, which they are a hacktivist group, um, meaning that 
they are doing things supposedly and allegedly for the good of common man. Okay. There's a lot to unpack with that. That's another time. But one of them didn't take kindly to a diagnosis and actions that was taken on one of the patients at the hospital. And so they took it upon themselves to drop a DDoS attack on the hospital, which, I mean, it took servers offline, just caused internal communication issues, a bunch of things of that nature. But it really starts to emphasize the question of if it was ethical or not, right? And this person ended up, oh, he is now in jail. He's been in jail now for four years. And has another six, and then he has also about five hundred thousand dollars in um, was retribution to pay. Yeah, so he's got he's got some money to pay back. Uh, now, the question of if that was ethical or not, especially if it was just a single person that this happened to, I mean, it comes into question a little bit. But you can kind of see why this happened in the first place. And I guess I didn't mention this before. The person. Uh, the patient, what happened to them was that they were misdiagnosed with a psychology, psychology, no, a, psychological, um, psychological, that is the word right there. There you go. A I'm psychological here for you. disorder rather than it being a physical disorder. It was like something to do with, uh, it's like a mitochondrial disease. And, um, the parents tried to get that patient back over to the previous provider, but the children's hospital, um, took away their custody rights and took custody of the child. So you can kind she was of in custody of the state of Massachusetts for like 16 months. Yeah, a- it was a long time. And whatever actually ended up, I believe she was in remission for a while. I'm not sure actually what happened with her as it pertains to Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, however, you can kind of see where the hacktivist was coming from a little bit. But at the same time, you're dropping a DDoS bomb on an entire hospital with other children. And that's so... Absolutely. My, by the way, my favorite part of this story, and go read the story at industrialcybersecuritypulse.com, it's one of them in our throwback attack series, is when charges were levied against this guy, he and his wife got on a boat and fled. Apparently, they had problems with the boat, and they were picked up by a Disney cruise liner. So <laughs> they had fun, right, until the FBI came and took them into custody, and then he was put in jail for 10 years. But I'm sure they enjoyed that Disney, that uh, that unexpected and unplanned Disney cruise adventure that they had for a few minutes. Oh, I'm sure with the mouse himself. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to talk about today before we get to our guest again, Josh Eastburn will be with us here shortly, is uh, we talked about in the last podcast is the ongoing craziness with Twitter, which is still ongoing. We weren't sure the last time we talked if Twitter would still exist by the next time we talked, if it would be all of these things would be solved, but uh, the craziness is still going. Elon Musk is still swinging the company by the tail for his own reasons. But one of the things that I thought about is, you know, in the last week or so, a lot of people have been expecting, uh, preparing for the eventuality that Twitter goes offline, that it just goes away. So a lot of the people I follow have had tweets in the last couple of weeks of, hey, if you want to follow me, come over to Mastodon or wherever they're going from here on out. But there is a really a sizable information security or and, and cybersecurity community on Twitter. And it's a good space for sharing, has historically been a good space for sharing information and a well-used space for sharing information. So 
one of the questions that I have is where does this community turn if Twitter goes away? What what happens if Twitter goes away? Where does this information go? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. If you do, we'll give our, our contact information at the end. You can always tweet at us at, at ICS underscore Pulse. Love to know your thoughts on that. It's weird to ask you to do that at Twitter, or you can email us. I'm G Cohen at CFEmedia.com. Tyler is T Wall at CFEmedia.com. But I think it's an interesting thing. And then a lot of people are moving to Mastodon, which I got to be honest, not super familiar with. But I know that there have been the same problems are happening. People are getting impersonated. There are security issues. Um, I think I saw somewhere that that uh, the uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency director, Jen Easterly, was impersonated on Mastodon already. So it's a, a, it is, as we said last time, the Wild West out there with Twitter right now. And I'm curious to see where this all falls because it is, not only is it, uh, an interesting case study in, in tech running amok, but it, there's some cybersecurity issues and some security issues here that they're going to be ongoing. I'm sure. And I know one of the uh, other platforms that people are turning to is actually former president Donald Trump's platform, also known as Truth Social, which at the time of its launch had a pretty long wait list just because the servers were overloaded by all of the um, people that wanted to join the platform because was, and weren't functional. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, just to have a platform where they could have more free speech uh, is the idea behind it. But now that, yeah, like you've been talking about, um, Twitter is a free-for-all right now. So it'll be interesting to see how people migrate back and forth between all of these platforms and Everything. And if there is a single platform where people land, I mean, Twitter wasn't the only platform people were communicating on, but it was it was a pretty big one. And now it's splintering into all of these other sub platforms. And who knows if people will go into a, a single platform or if it'll be a series of platforms or if it'll be a series of echo chambers where I go on the platform that has the political beliefs that I believe in or the, you know, that kind of. So it, it'll be an interesting world here and we'll see what happens. Twitter may not go away at all, but we'll see where it lands. Yeah, I'm a fan of going to Slack. All of us should just join one big Slack channel and <laughs> communicate that way. And I'm sure the people at Slack, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little about edge computing. That's that's what we're going to be talking about in the interview today. Um, really interesting topic, something we cover quite a bit on the site. I mean, as I said in the intro, the benefits of edge computing are, are pretty obvious. Um, increases processing power, enhances data, data analysis, mainly faster processing because you know you're you're processing things on site instead of sending things to the cloud. So that's an obviously hugely beneficial for companies, but there is cybersecurity risk to it, which Josh, Josh Eastburn, I have not said his name right once, Josh Eastburn, our guest will talk about, but there is cybersecurity risk. Um, you know, when you're opening more endpoints, that opens things up to cybersecurity risk. But uh, to, to his point, a lot of it comes down to, you know, as long as you are addressing the issues of having open devices on your network, you're probably going to be okay moving to the edge. If you are not doing that, you may have some problems. Yeah, yeah. So he uh, he provides a lot of great, great, great information, like all of our guests do. But he is also especially energetic when he talks. 
which makes him fun to talk to. So let's bring him in right now. Uh, joining us today is Josh Eastburn. Uh, he spent many years as an automation engineer working in the semiconductor, petrochemical, food and beverage, and life science industries. Like I said, when we talked to him, he was director of technical marketing with Opto22. He is currently the director of technical marketing with EMQ Technologies. Josh, thanks so much for being with us. Great. So uh, let's start at the beginning here. What is the state of industrial device security right now, and how does that affect control systems? Okay, uh, that's a good starting point because, in a word, um, messy. <laughs> and I think any um, industrial controls engineer has sort of an intuitive sense of this. Um, the devices that we're working with, a lot of them, although they uh, can be networked, right? They can exist on a network. They weren't really designed for the network in the same way that we think about consumer or enterprise devices um, with the particularly, right, with the same level of security. Um, and so what we have are uh, network structures that have to sort of compensate for that. And we also see that organizationally, right, with um, maybe the sometimes adversarial relationship between OT and the IT group, right, who, who sort of sees um, the OT side is maybe a, a potential threat for their network or something that they kind of need to babysit. Um, and so we, we see that playing out in a couple of different ways, right? The uh, traditional network models, the reference architectures like the Purdue model, take into account the fact that uh, not only are these devices uh, critical for the process, uh, but they're also very vulnerable. So we have these layers of segregation between the, the process itself and then the higher level computing resources or networking resources that are potential attack vectors, right? For, for accessing the process. Uh, and, and people even talk still about air gapping the automation network from, from other networks, whether that actually happens in reality or not. But, uh, because the fact of the matter is we need the data from the process. Um, but but those, the, the devices that we've had for the past 20 years, um, like I, like I said, even though they were on the network, weren't really uh, ready for life on the network. Their access to the network was primarily for um, moving data around faster than they could before, right? But not really to participate as a full citizen on the network. In order to compensate for the vulnerabilities that are inherent in the devices, we have to take extra measures that complicate the architecture of the network, right? Um, if, like I said, we have these, you know, multiple layers as this hierarchy, right, where we have devices connected to uh, other applications, connected to other applications, connected to other applications, this huge technology stack, okay? So that is more complicated, which creates a larger attack surface. There's more vectors for reaching the process. Um, and also we've, uh, you know, to compensate that we're adding in other devices, you know, maybe, um, you know, other network devices, uh, other layers of software security after the fact, because the devices themselves aren't inherently secure. And then you've got the organizational problems also of uh, every time, you know, process engineering wants to put a new device on the network, there's this uh, uncomfortable conversation that has to happen with the IT group. Uh, and, and we sort of feel like we're at the mercy of the IT group and don't really have any ownership over the network. So it's not really ideal for either either side. Right, right. That makes sense. So let's, let's take a step back a second. And, and what are industrial edge computing devices and how are they changing things? Okay, sure. So that gets, that gets right at the 
issue that we were just discussing is uh, now we're moving into this phase where devices are not only um, network capable, but they're network aware or network ready in the same way that you would think about, um, you know, a, a, a server, right? Uh, that sits in a, you know, in a rack in an IT closet somewhere. Uh, you assume when you purchase that device that it has everything that it needs to operate safely on a network, right? That assumption is we have has not been true uh, prior to essentially now uh, for other industrial devices, and now that is becoming true, right? And the 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 provenance there, or uh, sort of the the ancestry evolution there, is that. Uh, there's this there's this larger concept called edge computing, um, and this comes from you know telecom from IT. But you know the idea that we have when we have a large network or um, a, you know high demand network, it is helpful to redistribute resources so that they're not um, so that all that demand isn't coming into one place, right? The, the network core. So edge computing, and sometimes the term comes up also fog computing, all of those ideas relate to this idea of what, what if we took some of those resources and spread them out throughout, throughout the network, and in particular, put them closer to the areas of high demand, right? So that we're, we're uh, servicing the local demand more efficiently, and we're relieving the network core of some of that burden, right? And it may, can do, we don't need to access those uh, you know, high power computing resources for everything that we do. You can think of like content delivery networks on the internet is a, a really common example that a lot of people might be familiar with. So the same concept is being applied within the industrial sphere, right? Rather than having all of the computing resources be in the SCADA system or in the MES system or higher levels of that sort of, um, you know, ISA 95 stack, what if that computing power were embedded uh, closer to the process in the controller, in the IO device, in a gateway. So uh, the, the, the simple fact of the matter is that the technology is now available before it wasn't, but we can take the same kind of uh, processor that might run in a smartphone and we can put that into what would be comparable to a PLC, an industrial controller, um, or into like an IO, an IO device, like I said. So that relieves a lot of the problems that we were dealing with before, or, you know, that we kind of covered before in that you know, these devices weren't really capable of, uh, let's say, running something like uh, you know, an encryption algorithm uh, that we just take for granted now on, on your laptop. Your laptop accesses the internet and it does that over a secured connection. You don't, it's totally transparent to you that there's this whole handshake happening, uh, that the connection is being secured and encrypted so that nobody else can uh, see what kind of data you're uh, transmitting between yourself and your bank or something like that. So also, also these also critical processes are happening uh, in other parts of our sort of, um, you know, technology sphere, and they're just now starting to arrive in the industrial sphere. And so industrial edge devices or industrial edge computing devices are one way that, that we're seeing that pop up, um, but it directly addresses that need of uh, simplifying the architecture so that it's easier to secure and then embedding the actual technologies that we need to uh, create secure communication. So how does moving some of this processing capability to the edge, how does that open up risk for companies? And then what security methods or technologies does edge, computer, edge computing support? Sure. So uh, in, a, in a sense, moving those resources to the edge doesn't necessarily create risk because this, the, the reality is that right now a lot, they, 
we have a lot of devices operating on the edge, meaning the edge of the network, right? So you have a PLC that's sitting out in the process and it's connected to a network and it has little to no security, okay? And what we're doing is we're compensating for that by uh, creating VLANs, by air gapping networks, by you know putting uh, additional network firewalls, um, creating all of this additional complexity or putting in, uh, you know, restricting everybody to using static IP addresses and only being able to request those addresses from the IT group, uh, you know, that that kind of stuff that makes it hard just to get business done. Um, so that that's the that is the uh, the state of the union right now. Uh, so when we talk about moving things to the edge, what we're talking about is uh, increasing the processing uh, capability of the devices that are on the edge potentially adding storage capabilities that you know weren't capable uh, that they weren't capable of before um, being able to run more general purpose kind of applications so that they can take some of the load that is currently being sent into the network core and, and an example of that might be uh, historizing time series data right that could be done on the edge uh, rather than all being sent directly into the network core why would you want to do that well maybe you want to do some work uh, on that data before you send it into your your central applications, right? Uh, you might need to filter that data. You might need to um, normalize that data or put it into a data format that's going to be more interoperable, uh, more uh, consumable by the applications that then want to use that data. Um, and particularly if we're talking about distributed regional or global networks, you know, you could be using um, you know, metered connections for some of that data, which means you're you're paying for everything that you're transmitting. So it's worthwhile to not have to transmit data that you're not going to use or transmit data in inefficient formats um, that you then have to process, you know, after the fact to make them usable. So, uh, so there are a lot of opportunities to um, to become more efficient, which makes it easier to scale. And that's a big uh, that's a big focus right now of the digital transformation or industry 4.0, whatever it is, whatever angle it is that you're looking at, scale is kind of the name of the game. And getting your security right, getting your, uh, you know, becoming more efficient in the way that you're growing your network uh, pays off. It, that's what really makes that concept feasible. So, um, so really, that's how we're thinking about operating on the edge. But the the only way that you can do that, right, if you're if you're adding all of these computing resources out there, but you're not addressing the long-standing issue of you know, having essentially an open device, then, you, then you're really um, you know, amplifying the level of risk that you've been dealing with. So on the one hand, yes, you can do more out in the field, but, um, but don't assume that you're going to achieve scale without also you know, finally tackling this problem of cybersecurity risk. So that's a longstanding issue. Uh, if you were so naive as to, to try and operate, you know, uh, with more computing resources on the edge without addressing it, you could, you could uh, face a, a big problem. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, these edge devices make it easier. They're, they're designed with that in mind, you know, um, and do that by, embedding those technologies that you need to, to be able to operate on the edge safely. So you mentioned that divide that exists between IT and OT a little bit earlier, which I think is a big problem in the industry. What do you think IT groups need to understand about these new OT options that are out there? Okay, so the, the state of the art as it is leads to a lot of 
uh, distrust, right? Not necessarily adversarial relationships, although it can feel that way, um, but it's not clear what assumptions are safe to make. If you're um, an IT you know, uh, representative or a stakeholder, um, and some of the common assumptions like, uh, you know, that it's safe to run antivirus software or something like that just aren't true, okay? Um, where now with, with industrial edge devices in place, we can speak a common language between those two groups because we're using now the same technologies. So we move from uh, a relationship potentially of distrust to one where we can trust, but verify. Right, which is a little bit more like what we're used to if we're looking at strictly IT networks, right? We, we make assumptions about the devices that are being put on the network, uh, that they're capable of a certain level of security. Um, and now the, that is becoming true of our OT devices also. So the, uh, the conversation that we have can be different where uh, we haven't been able to make some assumptions about, uh, for instance, uh, can we manage user accounts? Are we capable of uh, deploying, you know, uh, using encrypted connections? Those sorts of things that we take for granted in the IT world are now true in the OT world. And so it's what we're doing is sort of making sure we can check the boxes, right? We're just verifying that what we would like to be in place is actually in place. Um, and, it, I've, you know, I, I've seen this happen where uh, uh, OT representatives sit down with the IT group to do sort of the traditional uh, security assessment or, you know, go through that approval process. And it can, and, you know, we've gotten to a provisional approval in maybe as little as 15 minutes because we can say, you know, okay, are you using, you know, this technology, this technology, this technology, and we can say, yes, we're, we're checking the boxes, right? And, and it's, it's a lot easier to say, okay, let's, let's proceed with this. We'll dig in a little bit deeper and make sure that uh, you know, the way that you're implementing, uh, for instance, user authentication meets our corporate security policies. But it's not, it's not the case that the answer is just no, <laughs> like maybe we've been used to, and, you know, and the, which leads to a longer, more complicated uh, kind of um, process for getting to that security approval. So how can users use industrial edge devices to help improve their ICS security? So a good place to start is thinking about um, probably something that's pretty common right now is segmenting the OT and IT networks, right? And the, the, the reason you might do that is because like we talked about before, a lot of companies are looking to extract more data from their process, right? They wanna be able to understand what's going on. They wanna be able to leverage that information to improve the process, to improve their products, okay? Um, and the way that we have those, uh, those networks structured right now makes that difficult. Um, but an industrial edge device, whether that's an edge controller or an edge IO device or an edge gateway makes that easier because it will provide things like, um, multiple network interfaces that are physically segregated, right? So you could have your OT network and your IT network connected into the same device, but using the edge device as a secure barrier, right? Um, with, uh, you know, a firewall embedded in it, with user account privileges defined in it to be able to manage the flow of data into and out of that network, right? That, that is now in the hands of the process engineer to be able to define that or the automation engineer 
who uh, manages that OT network to be able to define those policies and to work with the IT group and to define them in a way that that everybody's comfortable with. Okay, so that's that's kind of low hanging fruit. Where if you're using VLANs or if you have air gaps or something like that, it's much easier now to create a secure segmentation or a secure what we call zoning um, within your within your process. Um, and then from there, that sort of gives you a foundation to then do other things um, like integrate with your central user management, right? If you're running Active Directory or something like that, your Edge device can integrate with that. So now you can have security policies or um, user access policies that are deployed across the company and centrally managed. And if we get back to thinking about scale, right? Creating this large scale network um, where we're bringing the, the process data together with business data and managing that as one system, that kind of scale gets so much easier to achieve when you can manage these things centrally. And, and then, you know, on top of that, there are even bigger concepts like really exploring some of the architectures that are possible um, with an edge-oriented focus. Um, or if you're talking about a concept like IIoT, there are you know, communication protocols that are in place that change the infrastructure around that can also, that, that sort of require that edge-oriented focus in order for them to work. That's, a, that's kind of a bigger uh, step for a lot of people. So yeah, really we, we encourage people to look at the edge, look at the resources that, are, um, that you wanna secure but have access to, and then look at how you can start creating that secure foundation with, with edge devices. That makes perfect sense. That's outstanding, Josh. Thanks so much. All terrific information. And thanks again for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, guys. There you have it. Josh Eastburn, the marketing director with EMQ Technologies. Again, when we talked to him, he was the marketing director with Opto22, but right now he's with EMQ Technologies. Some great stuff on edge computing. A lot of interesting stuff in there. A lot of good stuff to unpack. But I, I always kind of come out of these with something that they said that stuck with me. And I mentioned it in the intro, but this idea of if you're adding computing resources and you're not addressing the risks of having more endpoints, more open devices, that's a problem. But you know, according to Josh, it sounds like, of his opinion, that that edge computing actually should and could make things more secure. Uh, you can face a problem if you are not addressing these things. But as long as, as you are, the edge devices actually can make cybersecurity easier. They're designed with it in mind. They embed technologies that you need to be able to operate on the edge safely, which he said during the interview. They can even, he mentioned, help bridge that ITOT divide that exists in cybersecurity, especially when you're talking about securing industrial operations. So a lot of benefits there from the cybersecurity standpoint and from a business standpoint. Uh, I thought it was really interesting stuff from Josh. Yeah, and I also like what he was saying too about trusting but verifying, meaning don't, I mean, don't necessarily trust what is happening until it is completely verified, which gets into the idea of zero trust, which we have talked about in previous podcasts. Um, but I also did, I also liked what he said about ITOT divide as well. And really, ITOT divide has been referred to as the next industrial revolution, right? Industry 5.0. So with all of that, edge computing is going to be a big part of it and just helping prepare, prepare? No, propel, yes. Propel us into the next dawning age of technology and cybersecurity. Yeah, it's not like technology is going away. There's just going to be more and more of it. And so we need to be 
securing it. Uh, that's about all I got for you today. I, I, other than because we are recording this right before the Thanksgiving holidays. Happy holidays. Hopefully you have a safe and happy holiday season. We are moving here into the winter. Uh, but yeah, hopefully it'll it'll be a safe one and you won't have to be one of those, whatever the number was we said earlier, 88% of people that are remediating an, a cyber attack over a holiday weekend or a, a weekend. Yeah, hopefully not. But I know I'm going to be going ham on some turkey tomorrow and I realize that is a conflict of interest. For more great information like this, uh, you can visit us at industrialcybersecuritypulse.com where we have wonderful content spanning from videos to this podcast, of course, serialized content, things of that nature, ebooks. It's a great place to go. No shameless plugs involved here at all. And also, you can reach us at Spotify, Amazon, and Google Podcasts if you don't want to listen to it on our site. I mean, there's no problem with that at all. Everybody has their way of listening to podcasts. Choose yours. To reach us on socials, as Gary said earlier, um, our Twitter handle is ICS underscore pulse. And to email us, he is gcohen at cfemedia.com. And I am twaltwall at cfemedia.com. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Bye, everyone. Stay safe out there.